Today it seems that people appreciate small things more than ever before. From bonsai trees to tiny houses, we like it when items occupy little space. But what about people? For decades we've been warned about overpopulation. We've been told that Americans should reduce their number, that we should occupy less space. But my guest today wants to see our population increase to a billion Americans. Would this be a good thing? I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Here's a song about population With births and deaths and some immigration Demography is a key foundation for understanding our world and nations Break it down What's the population in your town? Take the number, then you break it down Count by Asian gender, race, and then Add the births and deaths and movers And then you start again Babies make the population grow But people come and sometimes people go some will die and others move away Millions of people come and go every day Break it down, break it down, that's demography Break it down, break it down, it's one, two, three To balance the equation for your town or for your nation Add the births, subtract the deaths, and don't forget about migration And through this simple computation you will know what makes the population grow It is absolutely wondrous to be able to invite to Watching America Matthew Uglesis he is the author of the new bestseller, One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. Big, 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 big. And we are pleased to have him here for a variety of reasons. First of all, you probably know his former work with co-founder um, uh, Ezra Klein for um, having co-founded, actually, Vox.com, and also with Melissa Bell in 2014. He currently co-hosts The Weeds a podcast given twice a week. Before launching Fox, he also wrote uh, the Moneybox column for Slate and blogged for other entities such as Think Progress, The Atlantic, TPM, and The American Prospect. And so at this point, he is the author of not one, but two books. Most recently, Rent is Too Damn High, or The Rent is Too Damn High. And he's also written about uh, policy origins uh, in relation to the middle-class housing affordability crisis in America. And also, he has been raised in New York City and Washington, D.C. Matthew Uglesis, welcome to Watching America, sir. Really glad to be here. 
Um, the obvious thing, okay, we all went to school and we heard about population explosions. And so that's going to be naturally the first objection that comes up to the idea of one billion Americans. Uh, I remember those 16, I'm aging myself here, these 16 millimeter films that would be playing in the in the classroom. This is your home the way it used to be. This is the way it will be in the future. You know, <laughs> and it would be this, uh, this, this, this absolutely dis- disgraceful uh, uh, image of America with pollution everywhere and people crawling over each other like beetles practically, uh, trying just to get by. And then along comes Matthew Iglesias telling us that we should have one billion Americans. How dare you, sir, do such a thing? Well, you know, I'm actually glad you, you brought up the past. Uh, not everybody has um, uh, the, 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 the recollection nice. of, these, nice. of these old debates. Be no, nice, uh, because, be kind. So if you look... 80 years ago. Well, I don't go um, that far had, back. Now, come, come <laughs> no, on. No, I know. <laughs> but if you, if you look at the, at the, at the numbers, yes. uh, America's population has about tripled uh, from where it was 80 years ago. What I argue in the book is that we should triple again over the next 80 years. What's interesting is that that's come to sound outlandish to a lot of people because the rate at which the population grows has slowed down so incredibly uh, for two reasons. One is that starting in about 1980, the number of children that people had started going down, 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 down. And the other is more recently, over the past 10 years, the amount of people immigrating here from abroad has also started going down. Uh, so what I'm really calling for you know, is to go back to the world of growth that we used to have. And part of my argument for it is simply look at the levels. Uh, One billion is a large number. Uh, There's no denying that. Uh, It's a deliberately provocative title. It's meant to be a little bit shocking to people. And yet, at the same time, if we had a billion people here, we would have roughly the population density that France has. We would have about half the population density that uh, Germany has. And we would have less than half the population density of the United Kingdom. And, you know, all of those countries, they have their problems, they have their challenges, uh, but none of them are places that are, you know, dystopian locations of overcrowding. They're all places that have, you know, they have big cities, they have suburbs, they have small towns, they have open spaces. And so would America with one billion people. There are a lot of advantages to growth, I think. There are some problems, but they are manageable ones. But the basic idea that we should have the level of population density that you see in France or half the density of Germany strikes me as actually much tamer than most people think at first glance. Well, there are people listening who are no doubt saying, well, that's all well and good, Matthew Iglesias, but the fact is we have these areas called badlands. We have South Dakota and North Dakota, and who wants to live with no disparaging comment meant for people from those fine states? But who wants to live in the badlands area of anywhere in the western middle part of America? Is that what we're going to wind up with? Because that's the big fear. Well, you know, but all countries have, you know, some parts that are crowded and some parts that are empty, right? So uh, the United Kingdom is a, is a very densely populated country, uh, much, much, much more densely populated than the United States. Yes. Uh, but despite all that, you know, if you go to Scotland, uh, it's 
incredibly empty up there. It's a, a huge section of the country is very, very low density. You know, it's mountainous. I mean, there's various reasons for it, uh, just like with any other country. Switzerland is denser than the United States would be with one billion Americans. And of course, the Alps are, are tremendous. And, you know, it's it's hard, right? It's a, it's a somewhat unusual country. But like all countries, it's got places where there's people, places where there aren't a lot of people. One of the main ideas of the book is that we should actually look at the American cities, you know, not not Badlands, not not the Rocky Mountains, but places like Cleveland, places like Detroit, Buffalo, Binghamton, uh, so many cities in upstate New York, so many cities in Pennsylvania, Western Massachusetts, all over the Midwest that have lost incredible quantities of population. We know a, a million more people could fit into Detroit, several hundred thousand in Philadelphia, Baltimore. And, and we know that because those cities used to have more people. And if we repopulate them, we're not going to be suffering overcrowding. We're going to be a stronger country with a more you know, diverse, robust set of urban areas and, and communities. And you know, it's not for everyone, but it will help. You're better off in the suburbs of a thriving city. If you live in the countryside, if you live in a rural area, you have customers who are in the city. We have tremendous linkages backwards and forwards in terms of our economics. And doing something that will help the ailing parts of the country is going to help all of us. And just fundamentally, there's lots of space here. Well, I mean, all well and good. And I'm excited by your book, by the way. So I, I don't want to give any impression that I'm hostile to it. But I, I, my responsibility is to <laughs> ask what a lot of people are probably thinking. Detroit, Matthew? Detroit? I mean, what do you do? The only thing you can do to Detroit, the only thing that's worth preserving, this is just my opinion, ladies and gentlemen, is Motown, Barry Gordy, hallowed ground <laughs> of Hitsville, USA. Okay, I want all those studios left where the Supremes did their stuff and Smokey Robinson. But aside from that, basically left. I mean, one would have to do that. And how do you make it sustainable? Um, because it's the human factor. Okay, so we've got a bigger influx of population. So do we bring in people? We plant them in, in Detroit? How does this work? Sure. I mean, look, you, you, you do a number of things, right? So in the book, we talk about doing more to support families so that people can go back to having two to three children instead of one to two children. And yes, to talk about more immigrants. And so uh, an idea not original to me, an idea proposed by the United States Conference of Mayors, an idea that I like a lot and that, that helped inspire me in the book is they said, look, right now we have some special work visas that companies can apply for, right? So you can say, I need to hire some more computer programmers. And you can go into a lottery for that. There's a certain number of visas they allocate. We could let cities do that. We could say that cities, if they want to, right? Cities that don't want to, don't have to. But cities that have lost population and want to sponsor extra visas for skilled workers can go do that. And, you know, you look at some of these places, right? Cleveland is a, is a city that, that I know more about than Detroit. Cleveland but similar rocks. story. You know, um, uh, industrialization went away population loss, uh, but excellent, um, you know, cultural amenities, right? The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is there. They right. have yep. one of America's better theater districts there. They've got an excellent art museum. But, you know, and they have two huge uh, arenas. I mean, not, it's, just, it's sports <laughs> arenas, and they're nearly side by side. I mean, I've been to Cleveland. It's incredible. Yes, I mean, they've, they've got the sports teams, and, you know, but you go to downtown Cleveland, and there's a tremendous amount of open-air surface parking lots. Right. You know, mm -hmm. buildings that have been torn down, things yes, like that. Yes. Uh, you know, so it's city. It's, it's struggling in some respects. 
at the same time, you know, if you are talking to somebody who is growing up in Vietnam or Nigeria uh, or Bulgaria, for that matter, uh, the living standards in Cleveland are still some of the highest living standards achieved anywhere in the world, anywhere in human history. And if you created the opportunity for Cleveland to sponsor additional visas for skilled workers from abroad, people would want to go. They would want to come. We know American companies are not able to get as many workers as they would like. They would open offices there. There would be more customers for the restaurants and the shops and other things there. Property values would be high enough so people aren't losing their sweat equity the way they are now. The tax base, importantly, would stabilize because right now, any place that's suffered population loss is the problem. They owe money, pension money for the police, the firefighters, the teachers. It was accumulated in the past when the population was bigger. So some more immigrants come in, you help address those tax type issues, and now you've created a city that is thriving again. And so that people who grow up in Ohio and you know they have ties to the community, they have family there, they have the kinds of job opportunities that people would want. And you wind up with a stronger sort of happier outcome for, for the whole thing. And we are right now not taking full advantage of this important human asset that we have in the United States, which is that a lot of people want to come here. I, I don't I don't know your life story, uh, but you you sound like someone who was uh, born abroad. Um, yes, I was and, born, and many, born in Old Britty, yes. <laughs> Lighty, Old Blighty. There you go. Uh, many people, you know, from around the world like to come to would like to come to the United States. Right now, so much of our politics is driven by trying to stop them. And I think we should try to get smarter about it and use this to our advantage. Well, a critic might say, Matthew, and, and rightfully so, that, you know, this this might beg uh, for cultural segregation, meaning that we've always had in various American cities, for instance, Little Italy, you know, uh, we had the North Beach section of San Francisco. Uh, certainly Manhattan has had, you know, Little Italy. You go to Florida, Miami, you've got little Havana and what have you. So you have these uncaves, uh, the, these these locations of of various ethnicities. So um, going back to the Detroit model or Baltimore or anything else, um, do you see it as a welcomed facet to have perhaps a, a little a little uh, Saigon uh, or, or or I won't say Ho Chi Minh City, but um, uh, you know Hanoi <laughs> or something in in a place like uh, Shreveport, Louisiana. I think that those kind of diversity in ethnic communities have often been an incredible source of strength for this country. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think about I, I grew up in New York and, you know, there's a Chinatown there and probably a secondary larger one out in Flushing, Queens, and, and people like to go visit it. And also things change. Right. So uh, Little Italy has sort of faded away. Because, yes. Uh, you know, it's a memory from Martin Scorsese. Exactly. Uh, you know, because people come and, and they have children and they have grandchildren and people assimilate into the United States and they move out to Long Island and New Jersey and they marry people whose grandparents were from Ireland or, or Eastern European Jewish like mine or one of my grandfathers is Cuban. Um, and that's sort of the American story. But those ethnic niche neighborhoods are themselves, you know, uh, they're nice for the people who live in them, but they're they're sources of attraction. There's uh, I live in Washington, D.C. and um, Nearby in the suburbs, there's a place called the Eden Center, where a lot of immigrants from Vietnam started their businesses. So there's excellent restaurants there. There's banh mi. There's interesting stores. They've got an Asian grocery. Um, and these are, you know, not everybody likes these things. It's okay for some people to be, you know, meat and potatoes, basic stuff. But 
A lot of Americans enjoy the kind of diversity and opportunity that immigrants bring to their society. And we've gotten so focused on illegal immigration and what to do about it and people's feelings and the conflict between left and right about the impulse to be tough and the impulse to be humane that we've lost sight of the fact that, you know, we write the rules. I mean, people would like to see the rules enforced. I understand that. Uh, but also we make what rules we want and we should have rules that support more legal immigration. Well, one of the things that uh, many people are unaware of is the uh, rather sometimes stringent rules for uh, the uh, option to to immigrate to other nations. For instance, uh, among many nations, Australia has some you know very definite opinions about who may come into the country. You get into <laughs> that old debate of merit system. Uh, and there has been a pushback. Now, I speak as a uh, person who has immigrated to this country, loves this country. I always say British by birth, American by choice. I'm proud of where I came from, but I'm gloriously happy with where I live and uh, and this nation. Uh, in the process to come here, um, I had to go to an embassy and uh, along with my sister, actually. Uh, and we had to prove that we didn't have a criminal record and we had to prove that we didn't have diseases and we had to give our fingerprints and we had to be interviewed multiple times and we had to indicate that we had sponsorship and we had to indicate that we understood the culture and we had to indicate that there was a job prospect for when we all came to the United States. And we waited and we waited and we waited and let me make the point clear, we waited. Uh, <laughs> some people take objection to that and they say, no, 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 we, should, we, we shouldn't do that. But here's the interesting thing, and I, and I want to get your take on this, Matthew, and, and you know, you may have a decidedly different one. If you speak to people who immigrated to this land by means, either from France or Ethiopia or any other part of the country, of the world, I mean, to this country, you will find that when you interview them, and I've done it, there's no objection to the, the stringent requirements that were uh, demanded of them to be able to come here. The only people who seem to object to it, ironically, are the people who have grown up here and haven't been through the process. How, what do you make of that? Well, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with the process being stringent. I do think that it is more time consuming. But the, the real problem, I think, is not the process for the people who get in, is that we put a quantitative limit on it, right? So as you know, right, as you know very well, it's quite challenging to get a visa. They're not just handing them out uh, to anybody who's there. And so why is it that we place a limit, a numerical limit? on the number of people who can come. It seems to me that you know if you meet the qualifications as you do, you can show you don't have a criminal record, you don't have diseases, you have strong job prospects, uh, all, all these things, you know, you're not tied to international terrorism. It takes quite a while. And we should give out as many of those as people qualify for. That would be an incredible engine of growth. Instead, right now, the way we look at it is, you know, people come in from the Philippines, uh, the Philippines, Mexico, and China in particular. They're countries where the number of visas are capped. So you just can't come, even if you qualify, because too many other people from your country already qualified. But what's the problem there, right? We are a, so much of a stronger country because of the foreign-born people who come here. One of our just tremendous strengths, and we see this in technology sector, we see it among entrepreneurs, but we also see it in the cultural sector, among athletes, in so many areas. People want to come to the United States as a sort of arena of excellence and a land of opportunity. And we don't 
don't need to let just any old person who wants to come in. It's very sensible that we have all these checks, all these things. But if you meet the tests, like, let's open the doors. Let's let you come in. Well, let's go back to the huddled masses, the the whole idea of uh, Lady Liberty, okay? Um, And certainly people came to Ellis Island and their names were often changed because they were spelled phonetically rather than in the original languages. On the West Coast, everyone seems to neglect the fact that we had Angel Island, which is also the source of people coming in that way. (laughs) So this is a a country, and certainly I, as an immigrant who's now a U.S. citizen, uh, would be appalled to hear myself not welcome other people. Of course, I I want all people to to, to come in uh, by all means. But is there not a legitimate argument? And I know that some people will be thinking this, and you know, I have to express the thoughts of anticipation of audience members. Isn't there an argument for persons uh, to say, yes, but you have to, you, you can't have it as massive waves. You've got to have some assimilation into the culture. Is that fair or do you think that's unwarranted? I mean, I think it's good to have some assimilation into the culture. I think, you know, researchers who look at this see that people assimilate at roughly the same pace that they always have, you know, which is to say people who are born born abroad, uh, they tend to have some difficulty uh, learning the English language if they don't already know it. If they grew up as native English speakers, they retain the accent of the country they were born in. Uh, And then their children grow up here and, you know, they learn to speak English fluently in school and on it goes. Of course, I think the real challenge or, or the real politics of it is not that people don't assimilate, but that part of the process of assimilation is that America's culture changes, right? We used to be a country that had a strong Protestant identity. Over time, as more and more Catholics came, first from Ireland, then from Germany, then from Italy, uh, this became a country that was You know, there's lots of Protestants in the United States, but also now lots and lots of Catholics at all levels. And that changed the the culture here. And there is concern in some quarters that as more people come from Latin America, as more people come from Asia, I think not that people aren't assimilating because they clearly are, but also the bounds of American culture expand with that. To me, that's a good thing. That's been one of the great strengths of this country over the years. And then if you compare us to some other countries, uh, a country like Japan, say. Uh, Japan has a lot going for it, but they have a real difficulty with immigration there because it's not part of their national tradition to have change and to have immigrants and to have assimilation. And so it's a, it's a difficulty. You know, I talk to Japanese officials and they say, well, the economic case for more immigration is very, very strong, but you know, we just don't know. And, and they kind of shake their heads. Um, in the United States, we're not uh, situated that way, right? We we want our traditions, we want our culture, but part of our culture, part of our tradition is immigration and change. And, you know, we say the cliche is we're, we're a nation of immigrants. And, and it's true, right? And a big theme of this book, which is not just about immigration policy, but it's an important part of it, is to say we should, we should have pride in our country, not in the Trump sense, which is this kind of little America vision, but in the authentic best traditions of America, which is as a land of immigrants, a land of growth, a land of change. And we should embrace that to be the sort of strongest, greatest version of ourselves that we can be. 
Well, regarding the people that come here, to what extent do, should they be uh, informed about the nation's development? Um, I came here, uh, you know, George Washington and his troops killed British people, but I'm embracing George Washington. I embrace when I go to Philadelphia to Continental Congress, uh, Continental Hall, where, where the Declaration of Independence was. I embrace that because I embrace what America stands for historically and what it has been, all with warts and good and bad points to it. You said it was a Protestant establishment. Yes, that's true, certainly on the East Coast. But as we know, we've got on the West Coast, we've got the Catholic missions going up and down the coast. We have the Spanish influence there uh, and so on and so forth. To what extent when people come to this country, do you suppose, Matthew, that we should actually uh, invite and some people would even say insist that they embrace the, the elements of the history here with the founding fathers of this land? Immigrants and, and their children largely do, and that's actually one thing that's interesting and exciting about this book. I mean, I think we have a lot of tensions, obviously, historically and currently around race in the United States, and the problems there are very real, and I, I completely understand why people want a more sort of critical view of American history and, and a look at these kinds of things. But at the same time, to me, the immigrant experience helps capture exactly the sort of positive view of American history that a lot of people, you know, traditionally minded people, but also politically moderate people are looking for. Um, so, you know, I, I read the, the 1619 Project issue. Um, I thought there were a lot of excellent articles there. I thought it, it raised some interesting issues. But the basic spirit of the project does not speak so clearly to me, in part because, uh, you know, I know I live in a diverse neighborhood. My son goes to a diverse public school, and we have there a lot of people whose uh, parents came from Central America, people whose parents came from Ethiopia, people whose parents came from Somalia. And those people, they all came with their eyes open. You know, they are aware that the United States has its inequities economically, racially, socially. It's not something that's unfamiliar to them. At the same time, to them, the United States is a land of freedom and opportunity, as it has been for so many people for so many years. And I think about my ancestors who came here from Russia and Poland and, and Lithuania, and they arrived in the United States, but had anti-Semitism, very real anti-Semitism, and they mm. faced discrimination and they faced hateful things. But compared to what life was like in the Pale of Settlement, it was a tremendous improvement, you know, and then the country continued to improve from that baseline, from, from, from where they were. But that to me is, is the story that people need to hear more of. Not to say that America lacks flaws or that our history is not marred by crimes, but, you know, all countries have ugly parts to their history, mm -hmm. I think. Um, and all countries have flaws. What's striking about the United States in a comparative perspective is that so many people would like to live here. Well, one of the things about America, it was always described for decades and decades and decades as a melting pot. And then some people revised that and said, well, it's not so much a melting pot, as you know, Matthew. They said, you know, it's really a mosaic. Uh, I experienced that. <laughs> I lived in San Francisco for 11 years, and I enjoyed every virtual day of it. Um, our son went to a Chinese school where he was learning Chinese. Um, uh, my, my wife taught uh, also in a Chinese school, although she wasn't Chinese herself. Uh, our Christmas Eve, our friends to come over were Russian. Uh, Christmas Day, we had dinner with our Hispanic friends. Um, uh, we went to a Native American church. It was just, it was just, just gloriously 
diversified in a true organic way. And I love it. That's what makes America so exciting. Now, there are other places that have the similar experience, incidentally, outside the United States. Toronto has a very strong, as you know, international community that come in all the time. The question is, though, um, about the cohesion can you have as much cohesion now as you did, say, in the 1950s? The whole big thing, and you may remember this, maybe your grandparents, whatever, the whole thing is, we want to learn to be American. We are American now. <laughs> and that was part of the ideal, and it banded everyone together. Is that absent, or is it still there? I think it's still there. You know, I, the 1950s are a peculiar time because, of course, we were coming off of a, a tremendous war. Mm. Um, and I don't think anybody uh, would say that it was good that Hitler came to power in Germany and he, he conquered all these countries and millions of people died. Uh, but obviously, in terms of creating a sense of national unity, it's hard to beat that kind of pressure, right? People were conscripted from all different walks of life and they served together on the front lines. And, you know, we had propaganda films and, and, and things like that. So I don't think that's the right baseline to look at. Um, the United States, you know, Recent immigrant communities are more of a mosaic than a, than a melting pot, I think, because people can only change so much uh, so quickly. But, you know, you look at uh, the presidency of Barack Obama, you look honestly, look at the fact that Donald Trump, our great anti-immigration, xenophobic backlash political leader, he is married to an immigrant. And that, to me, is the American story in a nutshell, in a certain respect, right? That you see a level of integration taken for granted, really, in this country, that people with roots all over the world uh, can come here and be authentically American. I was really struck when, when I was in high school, I did a student exchange. And I lived with a family in Paris uh, for some time. And, you know, we had some trouble one night uh, on the street. And I was trying to describe the incident to, to my host father there. And, you know, he says to me, uh, well, was he French? Uh, and I said, yeah, I mean, I think so. He was speaking French. And he says, yeah, but, you know, was he was he really French? And I was trying to puzzle that over. I said, well, what, what did he mean, really French? And, you know, of course, he he's asking, was he white? Uh, because the conceit, you know, among even cosmopolitan educated French people is that the descendants of immigrants from Africa Morocco are not, places, yeah. Yeah, that, that they're not genuinely French. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and say there's no racism in America or no discrimination or no prejudice, uh, but I don't think that we have that view. Uh, nobody wonders if Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz is, quote unquote, really American. Right. right. They're United right. States senators. Uh, of, of course, they're American. Um, or, you know, I, again, you know, Donald Trump Jr., uh, his, his mother is from Czechoslovakia. Uh, yes. Of course, he's he's really American. We're all th this is America. Right. And that's a, a strong point that we have. You know, I, I, I we can debate sort of metaphors for the exact practices, but this is a country with a strong sense of national identity that's based in symbols like the flag. It's based in the rhetoric of the Declaration of Independence, loyalty to the Constitution. It's, it's the reason, I think, that people are so sensitive about the idea of criticism of the founding fathers. It's just true objectively that George Washington was a slave owner, but people feel that we have a civic religion that holds us together and that we should be careful about criticizing those figures. This is Watching America on WHRV. We'll be right back. 
Let me remind everyone that you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is the lively, and you're a great guest, by the way, lively Matthew Legacies, who is the author of One Billion, that's a B, One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. Bigger and better? I don't know. Bigger. Let's talk about America's self-image. It has tremendously taken a a great beating uh, over the last few decades. I remember a time when you would see people uh, always saying, USA, USA, number one, number one. And you'd have those sponge gloves, you know, that people sometimes have at a football game or a baseball game. But they'd be red, white, and blue. And we're number one. We're number one. And it was assumed that the United States was number one in education and number one in industry and uh, virtually every category you could think of. And then lo and behold... Uh, we got a new consciousness in this land where we began to realize, hey, we're not number one in education. We may be 16th or 23rd, depending on the category of mathematics, uh, chemistry, etc., cetera, uh, and that our scores were not as high as we thought, um, that we were being outdone by manufacturing in other lands. Uh, are you looking to the one billion Americans, new Americans, to be a remedy to that? I mean, it is to an extent. I mean, I am looking to get a more... Uh, you know, the, the main ideas in this book, I think, are ideas that I think a lot of progressive-minded people agree with. Uh, you know, we want to see more support for children, more investment in preschool, some mandatory family leave. want to see more openness to immigration. Uh, but there's a, a framing here in the book that is more patriotic than a lot of what you hear uh, from the contemporary left. Uh, but that you do see in politics, right? If Joe Biden gives a speech, uh, we've got some kind of, uh, you know, he's surrounded by flags, all, all that kind of stuff. And I want to get in some touch with that. I mean, look, America, um, what's going on right now in this country, it's a little bit difficult not to feel somewhat chagrined by it. But fundamentally, you know, this is a this is a pretty great country. It's one that I am proud to be a resident of. Uh, traveling around the world is interesting. I'd like to do it. I, 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 I like foreigners. Uh, but something that always comes to me whenever I go abroad is if I stay long enough, I, I start to miss my home uh, a tremendous amount. There's a lot to value here. And I think that, you know, we need to talk about this country in those kinds of terms, about living up to the best of ourselves and the best of our ideals. I think that's a lot of what made Barack Obama such a sort of appealing figure uh, during his politics is that he, you know, inspired Americans to want to reach for the best in our founding ideals. And I think that's the best way to do politics. Well, let's look at another facet, um, which we cannot ignore of America's self-reflection on the wounding and what was happening within its populace. And that is certainly the issue of racism, which is paramount in so many people's minds. There does seem to be a disconnect with persons of color who are willing to come here versus the perception of people in this country who are of color, who feel that they've got the, the wrong end of the stick and been treated badly. Where do you see the connectedness or disconnect between these two perceptions of America, those indigenously here, at least by generation, versus those who are on the outside, perhaps in the Middle East, perhaps in Asia, certainly in Africa, who want to come to the States? And it would seem to be um, a, well, a paradox that we we really can't uh, understand. What do you make of it? And, And how would you explain this to persons from another planet? You know, I, I think it's it's one of the paradoxes of our time, which is that 
because the United States is diverse and because the United States has meaningful opportunities for people of all kinds of ethnic and racial backgrounds, uh, because of those things, we now have African-Americans in positions of power in our culture and in our politics. At long last, uh, not, good, yes. Right. But so one of the things that happens then is that they are able to give voice to their experience, you know, very powerfully. Right. I mean, things that I have heard from my black colleagues, uh, from from black coworkers I've had previously have changed my own thinking. Um, and you see Tim Scott, Republican senator from South Carolina. I mean, he's spoken about his treatment at the hands of, you know, highway patrol officers in, in South Carolina or mm -hmm. the Capitol Police there. Yes. So we have a level of awareness of these things white Americans do that we perhaps did not used to have. Uh, but of course, we're hearing this from a black senator or a black president or black New York Times columnists and, and magazine writers, uh, because, of course, people do have the opportunity to achieve those things, including people of, of color. So awareness of the problem has increased, even as I think it's actual severity may have declined in some respects. Uh, but that's not to say, you know, well, everyone sort of sit down and, and shut up and, and stop complaining. It's the nature of progress, right? This is how things change. And I do think some people forget how actually new it is to have this quantity of prominent African-American politicians and media figures and, and things like that. Even when when I was younger in the in the 90s, you know, civil rights movement had happened. There was formal legal equality, but we still didn't have what we have today in terms of um, significant numbers of black people in prominent political roles, mainstream ones and in both parties. And so that's good. We've seen a lot of change for the better. But part of that change is that we hear more about how far it is we still have to go. Uh, you know, Breonna Taylor's death has been in the news lately, protests around that. And of course, if you stop and you think historically, uh, it's not like police officers uh, killing people who should not have died is brand new or that it never happened before. It's not even true that it's happening more frequently now than in the past. Uh, from what we can tell statistically, this is much more common in the 1960s and 1970s, but it's become a mainstream topic of social concern. It's not a new concern to black people, but it's a new concern to white people. Um, and it's good that we're hearing about it more. But we also shouldn't get confused. The fact that we're hearing more doesn't mean that it's happening more. <laughs> Uh, well, we did have some great inroads, though. I mean, if you look back to the 1970s, the the uh, the mayor of Los Angeles was African-American. Andy Young, of course, the mayor of Atlanta and uh, certainly the governor of Virginia going back into the 80s. So we, we had promising but never the fruition, that, uh, uh, fruition and uh, expansiveness that we have today, thank heaven. So you're correct in that. The, the thing I want to know, though, is in relation to the waves of immigrants who will come to this country, it typically takes, depending on, you know, data that you look at, anywhere from five to possibly 15 to 20 years a generation for um, persons of underclasses, if you would say, meaning labor workers, uh, people who uh, uh, are probably going to be hired for manual jobs uh, to make their way into the higher echelons of society. Are you taking that into account with your um, view of one billion new Americans? 
Well, I do think that we should look to accelerate the immigration primarily of skilled workers. I don't want to get rid of the unskilled workers that we have coming here because I think by the numbers, uh, they are beneficial to our economy. It's a great asset to them. But when I sit to start to think practically, how are we going to accelerate growth uh, to the level that I think we need internationally? We're going to need more people. Uh, but, I, but I think that we should look to get more people who have English language skills and other kinds of professional or technical skills, because we could use that. I mean, Lord knows we have problems with medical costs here. We should be creating a pathway for foreign-born doctors to qualify abroad to practice medicine in the United States, come here and do that. We should be making it much easier for foreign-born computer programmers to come here so we can maintain our lead in Silicon Valley, scientists and technicians of all kinds. So I think that's where the biggest opportunity for growth exists. Uh, but, you know, the people who come here, uh, less skilled people who are working in fields, picking fruits and vegetables, they are cleaning our buildings. They are, in many cases, watching our children. I mean, they are making important contributions to American society. And I don't think that we should uh, scant that or, or overlook it. This is Watching America on WHRV. We'll be right back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I am so pleased to have Matthew Legacies with us. He is the author of One Billion Americans. Subtitle, The Case for Thinking Bigger. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell. The thing I want to ask you, though, is the, just a, the practicality of infrastructure. Every time I go up to New York City and I cross the George Washington Bridge, I look at, uh, you, you know, what looks to be uh, dilapidated cement columns that make me think I'm going to wind up in the Hudson. Uh, it, it's not reassuring. Drip, drip, drip from iron. Um, it, it's, it's pretty darn scary, Okay. Um, inflate that to the entire United States, the infrastructure, new highways, buildings. You've heard the arguments. How, how do you answer to those, those uh, persons with great anxiety regarding these factors? Well, you know, I think it actually cuts somewhat in the other direction that people look at New York City and they say, oh, my God. This infrastructure is incredibly old, uh, which it is, you know, because New York is a city that grew to a large size. Uh, about a hundred years ago, it, it reached about the size it is today. And so one reason that the infrastructure in New York has become so old and so decrepit is that the city has stopped growing. Right. So you go to China and you see all these shiny new things. And it's because the country was desperately poor until very, very recently. So they went and, and they built new stuff because they had economic growth. If you go to my wife's family is from Texas. I'm from New York. So I I know all about this. I mean, the subway looks like uh, the ruins of an ancient civilization. Uh, but I go down to San Antonio, which is a city that has population has grown rapidly. I love that. And they don't, have, the, they don't yeah. have an overburdened infrastructure in San Antonio. What they have is a lot of new stuff that they built, right? And if we can get back on a growth trajectory, then we're in a position where we say, okay, we need new people, we need new stuff. And then you can actually build new things and have more um, a, a more sustainable infrastructure. I was I was on a radio program uh, earlier this week 
coming out of Detroit. Uh, and they were talking about how in southeastern Michigan, the tax base has shrunk so much because so many people have left that it's difficult just to pave the potholes. So they have a lot of roads. They don't have as bad traffic jams as we have on the East Coast, but you can't drive quickly either because the roads are in such poor condition. And it's very challenging to shrink a city, right, to say, well, we're going to just somehow eliminate whole neighborhoods. And if you can repopulate these places, then you actually have the basis for investments and upgrades and being the sort of world-class infrastructure that we want to have. Well, let's look at San, San Antonio. You in, invoked that. Um, as I said, it's one of my favorite cities. It's, it's a gloriously wonderful city. But it's it's a microcosm of a sort, historically as well, of America. You've got the Alamo. You've got <laughs> the touristy hotels and the, and, and the river walk, which is glorious and wondrous. But if you go outside of that central part of the city, you've seen varying neighborhoods, some with uh, of Mexican descent who are working quite hard. You have a more affluent part of the community as well. How do you infuse additional people into that? And where do you suppose they're going to wind up in a metropolis like um, uh, basically this, this given Texas city? Well, I mean, uh, to me, it's just sort of the point, right? I mean, America is um, America's a big place, right? And it's got all different kinds of cities in it, all different kinds of cultures and things, uh, you know, including ones that have been inflicted by immigration or in the case of San Antonio, by a sort of historical legacy that, uh, you know, in an entirely different country. And it just, the, you know, the more parts of America that I have been to, the more optimistic I become about our capacity to have more people and do more things and to know that, you know, we can just disagree as Americans about what kinds of lifestyles we prefer. Something that frustrates me a lot about our contemporary politics is that it seems to me like so much of what happens is politicians kind of go on TV and they yell at each other about whether we should be like the kind of people who drive a Prius like I do, or the kind of people who drive a Ford F-150 like my father-in-law does. You know, should we be the kind of people who own guns and like to hunt? Or, you know, should we be, I don't know. And the point is, is that this is a really big country. I mean, it's physically large. It's diverse. It incorporates all different kinds of lifestyles. And that's fine. And we can incorporate even more people in a sort of capacious, both practical and conceptual vision of the United States. I've had the pleasure of driving across America three times. If I could give a, a, a gift to every graduating high schooler, uh, across this land, I would say here's a here's a an opportunity for you to, uh, with some friends, hopefully uh, you know avoid hubris. But uh, we're going to give you a car rental and uh, put you up for various nights crossing America. I think every American should should see this glorious land. I mean, I'm just incredibly in love with it. From from you know Mount Washington to going out to Monument Valley, I just love this terrain in this land. Um, there is room for a lot of people. Okay, so what is in your estimation uh, the most uh, illogical, ill-put, um, unwarranted argument against what you're proposing? I, you know, I hear people say I, the, literally the word. The country is full. Uh, the president of the United States has said it. People have said it to me. And it's simply not true. I mean, if you travel the United States, you can see how empty it is. If you travel the world, you can see how much sort of opportunity there is uh, for, for much more density than we have in the United States. And I, I think a lot of Americans 
you know, people are biased toward the status quo. However, the country is at the time you're born, you kind of think, well, you know, that's just that's just how it will be. So people in Canada, where they have a larger country than ours, but only one tenth of the population, uh, they say, well, you know, 100 million Canadians, that's too many. Uh, but in America, if I propose to cut our population down to 100 million, people say, well, that's crazy. Uh, so why not a billion? You know, that's sort of what um, what our historic trajectory would be. That's how rapidly the population in Canada is growing. That's what it would take to be the world's number one economy on an enduring basis. So I think we should go for it. When you started to write this book and you were going through the initial, you know, before you got the galleys, you're going chapter by chapter. Was there any moment, Matthew, when you suddenly uh, wanted to jump up out of bed and say, this is great, this is exciting, and something perhaps that you'd never entertained or thought about with this premise of having one billion more Americans? Uh, you know, I was just excited the whole way through the book. Um, the The idea of one billion Americans, it came to me. Somebody literally just put on Twitter, they said, how about this, Colin, one billion Americans? And I read it and I thought, wow. What a crazy idea. And I started thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it. And I, I was really excited, you know, and it gave me a chance to write about a lot of things that I have meant to write about for a long time and have struggled to find a way to make interesting. That. So, you know, there's a whole chapter in this book about transportation and infrastructure, a whole chapter about housing policy. These are, you know, topics that I am passionate about. Uh, but this gave me a whole new frame, a whole new sense of urgency. And a lot of people, people who like the book, you know, who are the good people out there, the smart, intelligent people, <laughs> they all say uh, it's a very, it's a very optimistic book. It left them feeling better about the country and the current state of things. Because so much in our politics right now, I mean, this has been a sort of stressful, depressing time for a lot of people. You know, yes. I've got my, my son is doing virtual kindergarten on the internet and it's, yes. you know, yeah. it, it, it makes me you know, it's kindergarten. It, you know, it makes me sad. Uh, but this is a book that can help you see beyond the stresses of the moment and the real possibilities of the future. And it made me feel better to write it. And I think it has made a lot of people feel better to read it. Well, regarding having one billion Americans, more of them in this land, uh, I'm reminded of an echo of the words of uh, of of. John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Some people ask why and other people say why not. Very clearly, Matthew Luglacis, <laughs> you are a why not kind of American, which is always exciting and interesting to listen to. I want to thank you so much for being a part of Watching America. It's always uh, fascinating to hear varied opinions from Americans who were born on this soil with, uh, with an open invitation to other persons like myself from other lands. And so thank you, sir. I wish you luck with your book. The book is entitled One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. And he is a big thinker. Matthew Uglesi, thank you so very much for being a part of Watching thank America. You. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm watching America's creator and host, 
Dr. Alan Campbell. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for your kind and considerate contributions that make this show possible. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia. Remember when the president said that if Joe Biden won the election, the rioters would take over? Turns out he was right. I'm Peter Segel. We look back on those wonderful days when we thought 2021 was going to be an improvement. Join us for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday at 11 on WHRV Public Media, serving Eastern Virginia.